Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More importantly, today I have the pleasure of speaking uh, with Mr. M.K. Raghavendra. He is a film critic uh, and who writes uh, on culture, and he's produced a fascinating uh, brand new Bloomsbury 2021 publication, The Hindu Nation, A Reconciliation with Modernity. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Raj. So tell me, tell me, how did you end up writing this book? What was the main impetus behind it? Well, uh, two things, uh, two things, basically. One of them is the acrimony in the public space between the liberal uh, crowd and the Hindu nationalists, right? Now, my, my general thing was it seemed to be that both the liberals as well as the Hindu nationalists were not engaging in any kind of dialogue as much as asserting their political identities of some sort, right? Both of them were doing that. Now, so the question is, in order to reconcile this, in order to reconcile this uh, business, okay, um, one has to look at how this liberal, this, this thing of, you know, this liberal grew, liberal identity came about in India. So I examined the entire thing of education policy, Nehruvian thing, what exactly modernity was under Nehru, what he imagined Hinduism to be, what modern India should be, what the term secular meant to Nehru, what exactly happened. And that was the basic thing. And the second thing which uh, sort of bothered me in some way is that the, is the thing of cinema, which is that there is no such thing as a Hindu cinema in India, okay? There are, for example, you look at Western cinema, you come across Christian filmmakers who are considered the greatest in the world, like Robert Bresson, Ingmar Bergman, the Christian filmmakers, right? Why is it that you cannot take your own religion, your own beliefs, your own into some kind of thing? Why is it that every single film ever made about Hinduism has to be skeptical? Like Anant Murthy's Samskara made by Girish, by Girish Karnad and some and this, that kind of thing, right? It, has, it, it seems to be that for some reason, liberalism dictates that you can only look at your own religion skeptically, right? So the question is, where did the skepticism come from? Was it, was it uh, mandated through some uh, governmental policies? Is that the creation of, uh, did that create the liberal Indian? And is that liberal Indian responsible for the kind of way in which Hinduism is viewed in the West by and large in the academia? It seems to be some, you know, generally, it doesn't get the kind of respect the other religions get, right? It seems to, I mean, I mean, it's sort of disturbing to see the sort of absence of respect. If Indian liberals, Indian left-wingers, Indian skeptics were the, shall we say, the carrying the message of what Hinduism is all about, they will obviously carry, a, shall we say, a negative message about Hinduism. And that, they are actually playing this role of being both Hindu by birth and uh, and skeptical and liberal by education right so the question is uh, this is what seemed this is what has happened and I, I investigated the whole thing in some way and produced this book and what is the thing and what what india should do to become globally you know 
it's possible to have a hindu nation what it would mean look at what is what a hindu is a hindu a hindu person is that kind of thing so that's how it came about so j- just to clarify one thing before we dive in, dive into the structure of the book um uh, were you saying that in your view uh, hinduism is not as respected uh, as other traditions and um just to clarify in your view is that on behalf of academics of western culture of of uh, of liberal indians of you know, you know where would you say that view predominates well it it, it seems to have risen in liberal indians but the western media for instance new newspapers and they, they don't give much uh, they i mean they don't seem to accord much respect to to the way hinduism is represented it is represented as superstition entirely as superstition now if you look at every single religion has superstition right but other religions have defenders see one of the things about hinduism is it does not make demands of faith upon your upon its uh, upon the congregation upon its uh, people who, who profess to be born into it or who profess to believe in it right it doesn't make demands so because it doesn't make demands it it becomes a kind of easy target in some way so that that was my my sense i myself am not a atheist i'm not a believer in religion of any sort right but the point is people are entitled to their beliefs okay they're entitled to their religious beliefs they're entitled to their religious identities and there's no reason okay for that religious identity not informing in in some way the sense of nation or also okay it is not informed indian sense of nationhood in the past uh, before uh, before 1947 but there's no reason that it should not uh, do it now but of course you'll have to modify the religion you'll have to look at certain aspects of the religion and and uh, shall sort of restructure or reconstitute the religion as it's if it's a religion at all in some way as to make it acceptable today that sort of thing you touched on this in passing um but maybe more in a more focused manner what would you say is the ultimate takeaway or aim argument and gist of this book what do you hope people would most take away from this book i think two things one is that it is possible to have a hindu nation it's possible to have a hindu nation that hindu nation has to be completely has to be reconciled with the modern in some way okay you have to sort of uh, you have to have a have a you know a kind of beliefs the kind of politics the kind of virtues the kind of shall we say the, the kind of ethics okay dharma will not work as a dharma it's too relativistic in some way you'll have to come up you'll have to have a for example justice egalitarianism equal opportunity all these things would have to be installed as the basic virtues whereas the caste system will does not do that but to uh, to reiterate this point the caste system belongs to the space okay it doesn't belong to hinduism it's it's because christians practice uh, caste muslims practice caste sikhs practice caste all of them are practicing caste so it seems to belong to this the fact that they've given up hinduism and taken another religion does not make them abandon caste okay so it seems to so my entire thing is that hinduism is a product of the space rather than a set of beliefs that's the basic thing when you call for a hindu nation um would this sort of theocracy be something comparable obviously different and unique but comparable to for example islamic theocracies no it can't be for the simple reason that uh, hinduism is already secular because it has no it doesn't prescribe to any beliefs okay so for example let's take the most thing is that the bhagavad gita okay is the central text of hinduism is one one probably the thing but bhagavad gita is krishna right 
the Shaivite things like the Lingayats in Karnataka, the Vira, Vira Shaivas, they don't have nothing to do with Rama and Krishna, right? So there are a lot of people who, you know, my point I want to make is, there's a political need to unify Hinduism, but there's no philosophical justification. You get my point? There may not yes. be philosophical justification, there is a political need. That's the basic I, point. I, I do get your point in the sense that um, it's taken, it has taken me some time and some study to come to this, this basic realization and really grok, really internalize the fact that Hinduism is, a, is not a single tradition. It, it, it's a jungle. I call it the Hindu jungle. Yes. And I, teach, I teach it as an ecosystem. It's an ecosystem of ideas. Yes. Right? It's not a species. It's not a genus. It's, an, yes. it's a vast ecosystem. Um, and, and, and in addition to, 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 to the vast range of time and culture and history, it's, it's the Indic soil is so syncretic. Nothing is dispensed with. Everything is grafted onto, added onto. Um, yes, yes. And so so it, it, it's dizzying in its complexity. So I think of Hinduism as sort of this moving target or this tapestry or this jungle. So in that sense, I understand what you mean um, with respect to it being different from other traditions. Uh, that have central tenets such as, for example, perhaps Buddhism or Islam or etc. Um, now, um, what do you mean when you say that Hinduism is innately secular compared to other religions? It's innately secular because it's almost undefined. Okay, a lack of definition. It's lack of definition in the sense of saying this is Hinduism, this is not. Right? There are, for example, there. So the question is, it, it, since it it's so large and so vast. That there is nothing it does not exclude. In fact, Hinduism, as, as whatever, as, as, as some kind of unity, not exactly a unity, as which is taken for a unity, came because of outsiders who, who, who excluded themselves from Hinduism. Like, for example, Islam, right? Is, is the Islamic thing would exclude Hinduism from their own thing. They would they would they identify themselves very, 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 very clearly and very closely. Hinduism can't define itself like that. It's not possible at all. So the question is, because it lacks a definition, because it can't be def defined, it's a set of pra practices which excludes none that I can think of. Okay, it 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 is uh, it, since it allows everything, it can only be secular. It can only be called secular in its fundamental. I mean, I'm secular in, in a broad sense, not in the you know secular in the sense it excludes nothing. Okay, it's very difficult to exclude anything. For example, even consumption of beef is not excluded. So, so under certain circumstances, it can be eaten. Certain circumstances, it can't be, right? That sort of thing. That's what I mean. So walk us through the structure of the book so folks can get a sense of, of the different chapters, perhaps. Okay. The first chapter I'm looking at is, uh, is uh, uh, to, to make the... Yeah, well, just a minute. Just a minute somewhere here. Okay. The, well, the first thing is on nationalism. The first chapter is on nationalism, right? Then the, that is the what exactly is a nation? What are the various things? What a what a what a, I mean, what a nation is in terms of its religion, ethnicity, and all that, right? How ethnicity can constitute can help constitute religion? Religion can uh, constitute a nation. How religion can help? That is the basic thing. And also to look at how the entire Nehruvian thing of modernity how it impacted upon the notion of uh, I'm looking at the the trajectory of Hindu nationalism also in the very first chapter. The second chapter, after, after an introduction on nationalism, yeah, the introduction is on nationalism. The first who is chapter, a Hindu? Yeah, who, who is a Hindu is the second chapter. Okay. So, 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 so who is a Hindu? Tell us. Oh, you're asking me. I think it's any person, I'll, I'll say this much, any person who does not exclude himself from Hinduism is a Hindu. 
Okay. He has to say, I am not a Hindu for him not to be a Hindu. Okay. This is, this is my thing of it. An atheist can be a Hindu. Right? I am an atheist. I am born a Hindu. I accept Hinduism. Though I do not follow any of its practices. Or hardly, I mean, probably unconsciously, I, unconsciously, I may, if I sort of kick something, I may do this with my, you know. There are certain things like the practices. They are basically social gestures. But the point is, I have no faith in, uh, I mean, I'm not a believer in God or any such thing. I still consider myself a Hindu, right? So the, so the question is, it does not require anything except an urge not to exclude yourself from it. If you say, I believe in this Christianity or I believe in uh, Islam, I, this is my sacred belief, then you've excluded yourself, right? Now, Otherwise, would you, say, uh, would you say that applies to individuals born in South Asia or individuals born anywhere? Well, I would say anywhere. I mean, if you, if you know enough, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't go along with this thing that you have to be born here to be here. What about no, all I, these? No, no, no. I, what I mean to say is just, just to, to, to clarify your position, which, which is yeah. my aim. Um, uh, the idea that, okay, um, if I don't opt out of Hinduism, I'm a de facto Hindu. <laughs> so yeah, this idea, does, it, that, does, does, does that ABD apply to any individual or individuals tied to South Asia in some sense? Any individual. Any okay. individual. All right. Great. So, so this is what you argue in chapter two, speculating yeah. about Hinduism. Yes. And then uh, the third chapter is the Hindu subject in the globalized, globalized world. world. What are you saying in that chapter? Who's the Hindu subject? I mean, I'm looking at the globalized world, what exactly the beliefs are of the, of the Hindu. So in the absence of beliefs, what is, necess- what, it is, uh, what it is necessary to believe in a globalized world? What exactly is this? Can, is, it, is it reconcilable with, uh, what do you say, with uh, your traditional belief? Certain, like, for example, let's take certain aspects of traditional belief, right? I mean, well, I mean, you can take Mahabharata as, as probably the widest, uh, you know, the widest kind of, kind of textbook of Hinduism, what it includes. For example, you take something like the Ekalavya, right? All of them have to be interpreted. Nothing is straight, right? You take the story of Ekalavya. I wondered, what is the story of Ekalavya about? It is about the fact that only authorized people can receive knowledge, Right? If you're not authorized, you cannot receive knowledge. So the question is, what is authorization? So the question is, you can't learn by yourself. Okay, you can only receive it. Which means that the Western notion, the Western notion that you have to destroy your teacher in order to progress, okay, is not here. You can only receive knowledge. So all, the, all these are issues which are, which are not tenable anymore. Okay, so the question is that Hindu, in order to be globalized, Hindu, uh, you will have to, you know, sift out certain things of Hinduism, certain things are simply not tenable. Uh, the, the notion of karma, you know, I mean, many of these notions, you'll have to reconcile it. So this is basically what I mean by the Hindu subject so, of globalized, globalized. So, so may we dive into the, this a little bit? So okay. how does one, how does a, a modern global citizen, how does one, by what process does one ascertain which elements of Hinduism to hold on to and which to discard. I, I think it's basically what is generally called politically right, okay? Politically correct, popular, I mean, these, these things, you know, equality, you know, fundamental things, right? What, what is ethical in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the, I mean, you can talk about ethical, I, I don't think there's much disagreement between what is, what is ethical, right? Ethical in the world, like for example, justice, equality, equal opportunity, this sort of thing, right? Egalitarianism, these basic things, right? They are they are the ones which we have to. We have no option but to accept them. I feel, 
for now. It doesn't mean forever, but for now we have to accept that. In the present context, we'll have to accept that. So anything which is incompatible with that, you don't have to jettison everything. Anything which is incompatible with that, like for example, caste hierarchy, where something is considered the thing at that kind, you know, are you there? I don't know. Yes, indeed. Okay. Okay, all right. And you have to jettison certain Hindu beliefs, for example, uh, yeah. I mean, so the, the question is, you have to sift out. It will have to be checked in relation to um, widely accepted uh, democratic values, you could say. Democrat, what I call democratic values. It will have to be in tune with them. That would be the basic thing. You can go from point to point, but that will be the basic thing. I mean, philosophical beliefs, not so much. See, one of the fundamental things, the differences between Western thought and Indian, Indian thought is, Western thought is preoccupied with understanding the world in some sense, excluding humankind from it. What is the world without humankind there? Humankind has to respond to it. Indian thought, rather Indian, whatever, India, Hindu way of life, is to look at how to live, right? Now, how to live has to be reconciled. Even the Buddhists are like that. How to live, how to make my life meaningful, that kind of thing. How to live will have to be, shall we say, reconciled with what the world is in some way. And the world politically, sociologically, whatever, ideologically, whatever, will have to be, have to play a big part in the, you know, in the, in the way the, I mean, what, what beliefs have to be accepted, what can be, should be jettisoned. It determine that. You're following a chapter called um, Imagining the Modern Hindu Nation. What do you say? Yeah. How do I, what do I say about that? Oh, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's basically the, looking at the uh, problems that, in the, that, India, that, uh, that India has faced. This space. Look, one of the things about Hinduism is, one of the fundamental things is, it is, refers to a space because the word Hindu itself came from outside, that this side of the Indus, right? This space is very important to Hinduism. Not that other people can't follow it, but the belonging in this space is very important to Hinduism. Okay? Now, what was I talking? What was the, what was the question? I think The subsequent chapters about the Hindu nation and impediments of the yeah. Hindu nation. Okay. We're just in the process of unpacking the, the structure of the book. Yeah, yeah okay. Okay, this, this thing of uh, what, what exactly are they? the Hindu citizen in the globalized world I've done, right? The impediments would be, you'll have to look at the, the past. What exactly, what is the question of poverty? What is the question of inequality? How would you deal this? And there's a, there's a you see, there's a, one of the fundamental problems with, with Indian thought is the absence of records, okay? The absence of record making, record keeping, the absence of uh, knowing what happened here, what happened there, okay? Uh, the proper historical records are not kept. So there is this thing of Purana, which is a somewhat nebulous term. Now you have to have some kind of thing, you know, uh, Purana or Itihasa, these terms, right? Now you, you have to sort of uh, reconcile that with the notion of history, accounts, mythology, verified, validated history. You'll have to bring all that in. You'll have to bring all that in. Okay. So the question is, you'll have to look at the burden of the past. What exactly? For example, I mean, there's an interesting book, which I, you know, it's um, it's called uh, India at the death of Akbar. Okay, which means would by all accounts India at the death of Akbar would be some kind of golden age in the history of India. What exactly was that? What is poverty there? What is the nature? What are lives like? What how did people live? What are the lower the lower classes and the poorer people live? All that sort of thing figures that you come to some idea of what India was like. For example, I think you know democracy. In my opinion, democracy. Okay has made 
people who are invisible, it's made them visible, right? Okay, because they're all voting, right? For a long time, all these, you know, these, they, for example, when I was in school, I was taught that there were four castes. Okay, now there are infinite number of castes or at least enormous number of castes. Caste as Jati is different from caste as Varana. Varana is actually a fiction. I mean, in the sense that everything fits under this. We know that the Brahmins fit under that because of their male line going back to the Vedic people or some such thing. But the others are only a matter of conjecture. And we know kings who have actually paid Brahmins to have themselves turned from Shudras into Kshatriyas and that sort of thing. We know about all that, right? So the question is, the question is, you have to somehow deal with this, recognize the, you know, what are the aspects of India as it was, understand it properly, understand it in a sociological, political science sense uh, in order to make something of it. Now, that you can't look at it in the terminology which you've always looked at it, right? You have to look at it in terms of Western terminology. You have to look at it in terms of, you know, social sciences, and the humanities. You have to look at it like that. That's the basic thing of the, that chapter. How are you going to reconcile it? Uh, speaking yeah. of such fields and subfields, who do you think might most be interested in this book? Who's the book for primarily? Well, I, I would have hoped that the Hindu nationalists would most benefit by it. If you're going to make a Hindu nation, right? This is actually, it can be seen as a blueprint for Hindu nationalism. Okay. What is the kind of nationalism which, which, which you can have and still get acceptance in the world? Okay. It's basically that. The problem is this term of Hindu nation. Okay. At least among the among the liberal elite, okay, has been is seen as fascist. Okay, this kind of nationalism is seen as fascist. I mean, in my opinion, it's silly actually to look upon it necessarily as fascist. But the point is, the more you push against Hindu nationalism, the more it is likely as a reaction to go towards fascist uh, tenets, right? And it is also necessary, in my view, okay, for Hindu nationalism to strengthen itself by admitting intellectual thought into it. It's very necessary. So if this book should help, it should look, be looked at as a blueprint for the intellectual content of Hindu nationalism, but whether it benefits by it or not is a different matter. But the point is, it's trying to look at that. It's, it, they should be the most benefited by it. But how it's actually working out, I don't know. Because... This notion of Hindu nationhood is, uh, is uh, discredited at the, at the source by uh, liberals, you know. The very title of the book has put people off. People who have not even read it, okay. So how do you convert them? How do you do that? If they, I mean, uh, there are obviously some open-minded liberals also, but they should also look at it. If they looked at it also, they, they should benefit by it. But I think they are less likely to look at it because of their, uh, you know, uh, the, the title is more likely to attract uh, Hindu nationalists than liberals. This is my sense. Not that liberals do not benefit by it. One of the interesting things about this podcast, besides it being strangely popular for something so uh, intellectual and niche, is that um, uh, 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 scholarship monographs of various kinds are featured. Uh, it's it's a neutral space for the advancing of ideas and discourse, and so, uh, as with any responsible intellectual, of course, I welcome a variety of perspectives. Um, and my role on this podcast is neither to adjudicate or to evaluate or to sway or to pitch or to sell or to spin. Just to hold space for looking at the work on its own terms. Um, 
and I asked obviously these 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 uh, purposely naive questions for the prompting of content. But let me ask you this. So so okay, you have this 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 um this this manifesto. <laughs> you have this the blueprints this is the kind of, manifesto. of the, 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 the blueprints of of um of 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 the Hindu nation. How is what you're advocating in the book in these blueprints? different from what is happening with um, those interested currently in the Hindu nation? I'll say this much. One of the fundamental things is they are, they are constructing mythological uh, things about the past. Okay. There's a huge burden you're carrying. There's a huge burden you're carrying that Hindus are carrying, India is carrying. And you have to look at that burden you're carrying. Okay. And there is enough material to tell you that this is the burden we're carrying. You cannot mythologize about the past, make all kinds of things. Okay, there is, there is enough material. After all, you know, uh, the, you, there have been foreign travelers who have come in. You can call them disinterested. I don't think they had much of a thing. You, that, bur- that burden of the past has to be recognized. And you have to undo a lot of that past if you want to go ahead and be a modern nation. And you will have to take only, a, because after all, Hinduism excludes nothing. You have to exclude to make Hinduism modern, Right. Certain things have to be excluded. Certain things have to be have to be left out of a of a, of a reconstituted Hinduism. This is necessary. And the how to phrase this the 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 the, the metric of uh, you know the, the the measure of what is to be left out um, is the implication that that should accord with Western values. It's not West. Look, we no longer dispute things like democratic values, right? Okay. Mm. It is no longer a Western values anymore. Okay. If they were, came from the West, well and good. But the point is democratic values, justice, egalitarianism, they are far more, they are far more tenable or far more viable as uh, philosophical propositions, political propositions than something like dharma is what I'm saying, right? Okay. It's a, we cannot even define dharma. We don't even know. I was reading some, I mean, it's not possible at all. How would you define it in such a way as to make it usable in, in a society where the conflict is perpetual. People are always conflicting with each other. Personal interests are conflicting. How would you even use this notion of Dharma? Incidentally, I've got another book which has come out through Rutledge. You may find this interesting. I don't know if you've looked at it, you're aware of this. It's called The Liberal Nation Through Its Elite. The writing of the Liberal Nation by its Elite. Okay, It's looking at the English language literature the elite, the English elite, what is the version of India they've produced? If you look at that, you'll get some idea of what I mean. Uh, some idea of how the, you know, the English-speaking elite looks at India. What exactly is it? Is it tenable? They have their own problems. In the, I mean, philosophical problems in dealing with it. The left liberals, Arundhati Roy, Pankaj Mishra, Amartya Sen, they have their own problems of dealing with it. Okay, I've attacked that. I killed that question there. But the important thing here is, the import, where was I? I don't know. Uh, okay. Where was I? Yeah. So, the, so the question is uh, that the this uh, yeah this, this uh, I was was I talking about the uh, the thing of the you know what what should be jettisoned? Yeah, dharma. I was talking about dharma. Right? Yes. Yes. We can't question... use. It's not usable anymore. Okay. You can't use dharma as a notion when you are dealing with law, right? You can't have dharma as a basis basis of the law. When a conflict, civil conflict or a criminal conflict, you can no longer use that, right? Nobody's even tried to make sense of it. So the question is, by default or whatever, what you call Western values, democracy, democratic values, 
We have no option. Are we going to have something other than democratic values? Does anybody seriously believe that it's possible, at least as a, as a virtue, as something to attainable? Okay, we have to. We have no other option. If we have, we have to define that and then say that it's philosophically tenable. It can be done. It is viable. It can be done. We have to do that exercise. The philosophical exercise has to be done to prove and accommodate uh, that kind. You have to do that. Unless you do that, unless that I am uh, intellectual effort is put in, right? We cannot do anything with that. So otherwise, we have to accept these are what you call Western values. So, is there anything else about the book that you wanted to share or touch on? No, I was uh, gen gen look generally my my one of the things which irked me quite a bit. Okay, is the is uh, the sort of shall we supercilious way in which Western scholars write about Hinduism, right? Comic, as if it's comic relief, right? No, the point is Hinduism is, is hugely inconsistent. And as you agreed with me, it's, a, it's, it's an eco ecological system, right? Okay. So the question is hugely inconsistent, but that inconsistent comes because of a process of conflict, continuing conflict. That's why the process comes. So the question is, that the, 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 and all the time, all the time, the strange thing is, the strange thing is, even while they're completely inconsistent, everything claims shall we say, its origins in the fire, in the first source, which is the Vedas. It's not even the first source, by all means, by any means. But the point is that uh, it is that first source in the Vedas, in all philosophical, they seem to say that the Vedas are our first source, everything comes from there. Everything is a process of interpretation. It's theory down in some sense. The Vedas had all the truth, only it was not, it was clouded in uh, imagery and clouded in metaphor. We are going to explain that and they do it with more metaphor and more imagery, right? More analogy, that kind of thing, right? So the point I'm trying to make is that these inconsistencies, okay, have always been passed off as interpretations of this one single truth. This is the fundamental thing. I think that we have to accept these inconsistencies as fundamental to the process by which these beliefs came, process in this uh, historical thing, in this space, in this uh, Indian space or whatever, that's, that is a basic thing. Uh, so the, that is what really irked me. See, for example, let, let's take something like, you know, the, the, the destruction of the monastery, Buddhist monasteries, the fact that Buddhism didn't gain ground, right, in India. Now, the, one of the things is that they were killed by Brahmins, right? The Buddhists were massacred by Brahmins. And there's no evidence of that. There's no evidence of that. There is not one uh, very important, uh, I won't mention the person, one very important sociologist on Hinduism, on, on India. The explanation is people who murder monks, Buddhist monks, okay, Buddhist monks and destroy monasteries will not leave evidence of their crimes behind. You're talking about 8th century, 7th century AD and you're talking about crimes. The very respected sociologist. So the question is, what I'm trying to make is, okay, that this entire thing is absence of, uh, I have my own notions for why, you know, there is absence of records, absence of, uh, you know, historical records, why handed down experience is not, you know, recorded in some way, where there's a loss of, uh, there's a loss of knowledge, largely because records are not kept, right? What is the reason for that? I have my own uh, reasons for that, which I came upon uh, by studying Indian cinema. In many ways, <laughs> Indian cinema not being mimetic, I won't go into that. So the question is, the point is that this thing is being used in some way. It is being misused in certain ways. But because you have no records, you have nothing to defend yourself with, you're at a disadvantage. 
So you have to do something. You have to go about it. There is no doubt that orality is inferior to literacy, right? Today, but at one point, the entire Brahminical tradition rested on orality, and I think orality, basically, this is my my view. You may or may not. Orality came about the thing of keeping uh, knowledge within a certain preserve, a certain preserve. That was the reason for orality. You can pass it on to whoever you want to, whereas literacy will be indiscriminate in passing on knowledge. Now this has kicked back. I mean, I think it has uh, hurt uh, India quite badly. This entire notion. So all this you will have to deal with. You will have to build up, but it's it's a huge amount of rebuilding, reconstruction from from the basics. And I don't think we did that after 1947. my lament here is that we did not do that after 1947 okay that is my basic lament that we did not see we were so busy looking upon uh, the, uh, the being skeptical about our past that we did not see that this past whether we valued it or not needed to be preserved had needed to be uh, needed to be investigated needed to be inquired into this is my basic that is the basic for which my book came about this is where i end also and how do you deal with this in future this is the basic thing fascinating well i want to thank you for appearing on the podcast today my thanks my thanks to you thank you very much okay you're welcome for those of you listening we have been speaking uh with mk raghavendra about his brand new bloomsbury 2021 publication the hindu nation a reconciliation with modernity Um until next time stay safe stay sane keep listening keep reading and keep contemplating what it takes to build a nation take care thank you